0: Our second reading for tonight comes from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. That's on page 1,237. Starting at verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, But with the help of God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our heart. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship we work day and night in order not to, burden to, not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory.
1: Well, friends, do keep your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We will work through all those verses together. And we want to seek now God's help as we think about this passage and how it really affects us and makes a big impact on our lives, hopefully, under God. So let's let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you you speak to us through your word. And so we pray that as we hear it, we'll do receive it as it really is, the word of God. And so we pray, Lord, that you will be working in our hearts as We hear and listen. Please change us by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we'll be exploring a very big question and it is a personal question. Very personal question but a very important question and that is, is your life worthy of God? It's a huge question. Is your life worthy of God? Does your life stack up to the life that God has caught you to? Does your life stack up to the life of godliness, of righteousness, of holiness that God has caught you to? Does it stack up? Now when you think about this, it feels so intrusive, doesn't it? It feels so invasive. What has this got to do with you, John? This is my life, it's my private life, it's my personal life What has it got to do with you, whether my life stacks up to God's calling or not? But you see, as Christians, we can't say that, can we? We can't say that. For Christians, our lives, all our lives, your life, my life, they always come under review. They always must come under review. They always come under the critique and challenge of God and his word. And so, tonight we'll be reflecting on this big question, Does your life stack up to a life worthy of God? Now, how do we work that out? Well, let's imagine. Tonight, just say, we can try to work it out this way, I follow you home. I follow you home. Wherever you go, I'm with you. You're driving. I'm sitting there in the back seat watching you, quietly observing. I see the car cut in front of you. I'm watching just to see what you would do. And then you get home, you're sitting there on the couch, you're watching TV. Well, I'm right there next to you on the recliner, just watching you and watching what you're watching. And then you go to your computer, your laptop, you open it up, you do something and I'm right there behind you, just watching quietly. And then tomorrow you go out on a date with your girlfriend and you're being romantic, just sitting at Macca's. You pick up a French fries. You get your girlfriend, open up your mouth, I'll put it in. And I'm there in the middle, just watching. (laughs) Just watching and observing. I mean, if I do that long enough, perhaps I'll be able to work out whether your life stacks up, whether your life is worthy of God. But now what about the flip side? Let's say you follow me home. You follow me home and you see all that I do. You observe all that happens in my household, how I speak to Ebon, how I speak to my kids, what I do at night with them. You see me in my study, you see me in the car, you see everything I do. And then the question to you is, will my life stack up? Will my life look like that it is a life worthy of God? And so if I observe you and if you observe me, will I find or will you find hypocrisy? Inconsistency in what we believe and how we live. A life that just does not stack up to the life that God has called us to. We see, this is the question we'll be exploring together tonight because, you see, what we find in this passage was that Paul's life was under examination. Paul's life was under review. Did his life stack up to the life that God has called him to? Were his convictions and his conduct consistent? Was his life worthy of God? And so in one sense, as we read this, we reflect, we review Paul's life. And so let's turn to this letter. Now recall from what happened so far. What prompted Paul to write this letter in the first place was to encourage this church. It's a very young church, still in its infancy. He was only with this church for three weeks. He planted this church But then because of opposition and suffering and persecution, he was chased out of the city. But then since he left, there were some accusations levelled against Paul. Perhaps they were saying, you know, your leader Paul, your pastor, your minister Paul, his life just didn't stack up. He only came to use you, to abuse you, to benefit from you. He was only concerned for his own reputation and so his life didn't really stack up. Now, Paul now may have heard of these accusations against him. What did he say? Well, Paul was completely transparent here. Nothing to hide at all. His convictions were shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went to them because of the gospel of Jesus, because Paul, in his mind, he knew, he knows and believes wholeheartedly. This is the only message that can save your life. This is the only message that can give you life beyond the grave. This is the message of eternal life. Jesus is the only Lord and Saviour, the only Saviour who would go to the cross for you. And so for Paul, his convictions were pure. It was shaped by the Gospel. And it didn't even matter to him that his life was on the line for proclaiming Jesus. You see, he was hated for it by the Jews there in that city. It didn't stop him, didn't faze him. He suffered because of it. It didn't stop him proclaiming Christ. And so now Paul, in a sense, defends. He recalls, he look at verses 1 and 2. He recalls what's hap- what has happened. He says, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. The word here is, it is empty. It was not empty. It wasn't empty of purpose. It achieved something. The gospel did something. And then verse 2. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. You see, Paul, his convictions were shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, why else would Paul put his life in danger if the gospel was not true? If the gospel could not save, why would he be doing such a silly thing? Going to Philippi and then there in Thessalonica and be op- op- oppressed and suffering and persecuted because of the gospel? Why did he do that? Because the gospel, the message, is not empty. People are saved by it. You see, it's the only reason why. When you come to think of it, it's the only reason why, for over you know about two thousand years now, why missionaries continue to go out and put their life on the line to proclaim the gospel. Why would they do it? Because the gospel is true. It is the only message they can save. I I have a very good friend I went to Bible college with. We had dinner with them recently. They went to the Middle East for three years, a bit over three years. They've got two young kids, younger than our kids. Just think about it leaving this comfortable, safe country to go to the Middle East and it was a dangerous place. It still is a dangerous place. They've come back for a bit but now they're planning to go back. Why would anyone do that if the Gospel was not true? If the Gospel was not the only message that can save? And so they are willing, just like Paul was, because the Gospel is the only message that can save. And so Paul you see here, he was living a life worthy of the gospel. He's showing his convictions. But now they say, well, Paul was in it for the money. That's why he came. He was really here for his own reputation for, for praise, for glory, to get the applause of men. He was on about making himself big and important. But then Paul now responds, "Well, God is my witness. God is my judge." God sees my heart. And so here Paul defends himself again. Look at verses 3 to 6. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. And so Paul is saying here, we serve you with clear conscience. We proclaim the gospel to you with no ulterior motives, but to save you. And then verse 4 he goes on. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You see, Paul knew who he, his audience was. It's God alone. And then verse 5. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. And so when you reflect on this, Paul is recalling what he did, his convictions. Did Paul's convictions stack up? Did his life stack up to the call of God? Well, it did. It did. But then when we reflect on Paul and we reflect on the state of the church today, the the state of many ministries and ministers today, it's sad to say that's not always the case. It's not always the case, even amongst Christian leaders. You always expect that ministers and pastors and evangelists will always be proclaiming the gospel with no hidden agenda, with no ulterior motives, but with complete transparency. But we know that it's not always the case and it's a terrible thing. Now, I've seen examples of this. I remember watching a TV evangelist one time. Don't know why I was watching, but I was watching and he was trying to convince his viewers to buy this little bag of oil. Buy this bag and you'll be healed. This is anointing oil, this special oil. He was trying to convince his his viewers to do that. I was a viewer, I wasn't that silly, but reflecting on that, man, that was dodgy. What type of ministry is that? He was trying to do ministry, do the gospel, somehow with some Otero motives to get money. Or another case, I remember visiting another church. This was several years ago. At the beginning of the service, after lots of singing, and that was okay, there was the collection that was taken for the church and it was called a tithing and and a little sermon was given. You'll be blessed much if you give much. And then that was okay. And then after that there was the guest speaker, a speaker from the United States. He spoke for quite a while. But then after that, at the end of the service, I thought thought this was it, time to go. But then there was another collection and it was called a love offering just for him. It's called a love offering. And so we were encouraged, if you were blessed by his talk, then then give for him, for that guest preacher. And whatever was collected that night, I suspect would have been in the thousands. The church was big, it was about 2,000 people. It was in the thousands all given to that one guest speaker. Man, what a gig to be a preacher. But that sounded so dodgy to me. It so dodgy. And apparently, this is what I learnt afterwards, in some church circles, that's how ministers make money. I come to your church and get the love offering from your church. You come to my church and you get the love offering from my church. That's how they get rich. What a good idea. We won't do that tonight, so don't you worry. <laughs> But we see none of that in Paul. His convictions stack up. He was a man of integrity, of transparency. No material motives. He proclaimed the gospel freely. But now what about his conduct, his life? What was that like? Did that stack up? Well, just as his convictions were shaped by the gospel, so was his conduct amongst them. And they would have seen that. They would have seen evidence of how Paul lived amongst them. And so Paul now, he reminds them once again. He reminds them, I was like a mother to you, loving you, gently nursing you. His life was consistent with his belief. And so have a look, verses 6, the second part of 6 to 8. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. That The language is of a nursing mother, it's that type of Tender, loving care. And then verse 8, We love you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God. That would have been enough, but what did poor do? But our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. And then verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And so what was Paul's life like? Did it stack up? Was it worthy of God? Well, you could say from what he recalls here, he was for real. He was for real. He didn't just come to them and say, Jesus loves you and so you love your neighbour and left it at that. But rather he showed the love of Jesus has transformed his own life, transformed his own heart so that he loved them dearly. He experienced the love of Christ for him loved them dearly, cherished them, treated them so preciously like a little baby. He loved them that much and he wanted to give them and give and give and give and never receive from them, just like a mother. And so if you think about this and how Paul conducted himself amongst them, it helps us think about ourselves. I think you can tell how mature a Christian is just by how they love how they are willing and joyful to share their lives. But the more they're willing to do that, the more they show their love. I think it reflects on how mature they are as a Christian. And in my growing up as a Christian, we've experienced love time and time again from our church family, the various church families we've been a part of. I remember as a youth and teenage boy, it was our leaders who loved us, they had a lot of fun with us, they drove us around. They didn't get us to you know, pay for petrol or whatever, they drove us around, we had fun with them, they loved us in that way. When we got married, it was our Christian friends who helped us a lot with our wedding setups and that. When we moved into our first home, it was our Christian friends who helped us move and they helped us assemble all the IKEA furniture that we no longer have and when Ethan was born, while we were up in Sydney studying, no family around, it was our church family who cared for us, who showed love, they brought food around. And then when we moved into this place where we're staying now, it was this church family who showed tremendous love to us. It was wonderful to experience, helping us move, helping with a few working bees as well. You know, it was organised by some folks here and we felt so loved, doing some gardening for us, planting some plants for us, coming to water the plants for us. Uh, this shows how good of a gardener I am. And even someone helped us lay turf. We just felt love by members of this church in such wonderful ways. And so that helped us to love as well, to grow in our love, to grow in our love not just with words but with our life, to share our lives with this church family. And so Yvonne and myself likewise, we try hard, we really do try hard to love this church as our family, our immediate family we've got, but this is our extended family, investing in the lives of the family here, celebrating when this family is celebrating, mourning when this family is mourning, loving not just with words but with our lives. And so that was the life of Paul. He conducted himself in a way that was consistent with the gospel. His convictions was consistent with the gospel, like a mother loving and nursing the young. But then more than that, Paul reflects on a bit more. He now says he was also a bit like a father to them, setting a godly example for them to follow and encouraging them in that way, that they might live lives worthy of God, just like a father. Look at verses 10-12. to He says, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with Each of you, as a father, deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live life, that is, or more literally, to walk in a way worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And so the Apostle Paul here, he set up his life as an example for them to follow. And so when I was reflecting on this and preparing this, it made me think, what is it that I want reflected in my children How do I want them to grow up? Now, I've shared with our three kids quite regularly on the type of men or women I want them to be. And so I thought this week I'd test them to see whether they would recall that. On a drive to pick them up, uh, pick Esther up, I was there with the two boys. And I asked them, the two boys, Caleb who's seven and Ethan who's five, what is it that Baba wants Baba means? daddy in Chinese shows. I'm bilingual, right? I can say one Chinese word. What does Baba want from you when you grow up? What type of man do I want you to be? What type of man do I desire you to be? They're only seven-five. They're not thinking really much about that. But I thought I'd test them to see whether they remembered what I've taught them. Well, Caleb said, to be a manly man and a godly man. That's what he said. That was his answer. And I was pretty happy pretty happy, but he was almost right. I said to him, Caleb, no, godly man first and then manly man. Godly man first, manly man, make sure you don't cry over a broken nail, that type of man. So I was pretty happy. Godly man, manly man. But you see, Paul here, like a parent to them, wanting them to walk like him, wanting them to walk in a way that is worthy of God. Walk where their convictions and their conduct is shaped by the gospel motivated by the gospel, saturated by the gospel. And we can see here Paul's example. His life stacks up. It was a life worthy of God. But now, of course, when we reflect on the word of God, it's not just about Paul, but it speaks through him to us as well. And so, of course, the big question, what about us? What about you, Is your life worthy of God? Is your life worthy of God? Well, it's worth, isn't it, once in a while to do some self-assessment. It's worth doing that, isn't it? I won't be following you home tonight, so you don't need to worry about that. You won't be following me home too. In fact, actually, the youth leaders, we've got a meeting at my place. I thought I'd add that in. But anyway, you won't be, all of you won't be following me home and seeing what I do. But it is worth doing an assessment, once in a while, a deep personal assessment and a reflection. Us and God, me and God, know where we are. There's no hiding from God. And so when I was reflecting on this, you see this is talking about the Apostle Paul, how he was a pastor, a minister to the people there. And so this passage has a lot to say directly, directly to the Christian minister, it has a lot to say to someone like me, entrusted with the flock of God, speaking to the minister. In fact, one, one author describes this passage as one of the richest descriptions of the work of a Christian minister to be found in the New Testament. It is about how Paul acted, conducted himself as a minister of God. And so, reflecting on this passage was personally challenging to me in my, in a sense, position. How do I stack up as a minister in this church at this time? Is my life as a minister worthy of God in this church at this time? Are my convictions and my conduct amongst you, his church shaped by the gospel at this time? These were the questions I was reflecting on versus speaking to the Christian minister. And so you can sense how how piercing this passage would have been to me. Well it's been suggested, how do we assess this? What do we do? Well it's been suggested by not anyone here, but that ministers should get performance reviews. What do you think about that? I and mean, just like you in your jobs, if you're working, you get a performance review every year on how you're going. Whether you're meeting your targets, whether you're meeting your KPIs, you do well, you get a you get a raise, eh? you get a promotion. There's way else for me to go anyways, but anyway. So should ministers have targets, KPIs, so that they won't become too comfortable, so that they won't become too complacent? Just imagine that. You're a banker. There are clear targets. You make sure you bring in $5 million of profit this year. Well, as a minister, what's your performance, a KPI? Your target can be, you make sure you bring in five new converts this year, Otherwise, we cut your stipend. You make sure you steal 20 sheep from neighbouring churches. Otherwise, we cut your... No. Of course not, right? How do you assess a minister? How do you check out the performance of a minister? And so in one sense, when you think about this, it sounds strange that ministers are, uh, can be uh, one who comes under performance reviews. But as ministers are called to work faithfully. How do you review that? Well, in one sense the performance of any minister, well, in a sense you shouldn't call it a performance at all because ministers don't perform. All right? You can't, in one sense, say that the minister's uh, review can be reviewed in such a way because you see them every week. You see how they preach, you see how they lead, you see what they do as they pass them. But then in another sense, when I was thinking about this, it's actually not a bad idea. Not measuring performance like you do in a workplace but measuring whether the life of your minister is in fact stacking up. Because who else is going to feed back to the minister? Whether my life is in fact stacking up. Whether my life, my convictions, my conduct as a minister in this church at this time is worthy of God. It's actually not a bad thing. You see, Paul was transparent with the Thessalonians. And so as I reflected on this, shouldn't I too be transparent with you, the people of God? And so I want to say a few things to encourage you to be active for my good. I want to say a few things for you to be active for the good of this church and for the glory of God. And that is, if you ever feel, if you ever feel that my convictions are not shaped by the gospel, you better tell me. You better tell me. If you ever feel that my conduct amongst you does not is not shaped by the gospel, well, you better tell me. It might just be because I have a blind spot, but it's up to you to be active to tell me because I too, like you, sit under the authority of God. I too, like you, sit under the authority of the word of God. And so now, I must say to you as a pastor here, I'm never against hearing criticism, critiques. I don't mind receiving it. Because you see, I trust, deep inside I trust that if it's important enough for you to tell me then you're actually doing it for the good of this church. I trust that. You're not just trying to take me down. You're telling me for the good of this church but also for the glory of God and when I do hear that it will only help me become a better minister. And so that is how you can help me keep my life in check. Help me make sure that my life is worthy of God. And then my job, well, my job is to do likewise with you. My job is to help you see whether your life is worthy of God. And so my question now to you is, what about you? Is your life worthy of God? Are your convictions, your conduct, publicly, privately, shaped by the Gospel, so reformed by the Gospel, so saturated by the gospel like like the air you breathe that it, it will cause you to share Christ, to proclaim Christ, even if it costs you, that you will invest and commit your whole life, every ounce of your being to the things of Christ, to the things of this church that belongs to Christ, to the things of God, to the things of heaven. Will you invest? and commit every ounce of your life to that, even if it means getting a lower mark in your studies because you're committed to the life of the church. And you don't skip church. Even if it means earning less money because you're committed to having more time to do the work of the Lord. Even if it means being tired because you want to serve more. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a life worthy of God? Just just last week, Yvonne and myself, we had a chat, a long chat with a couple from church, this wonderful family and it was just so encouraging, so exhilarating just to sit down and, and see how this family's going. I'll try to be vague here so that no one will be embarrassed and I, you probably won't work out who it is. But these two, high achievers, unbelievably high achievers, earning big, bucks and I really mean big bucks but they've consciously stepped down from working more. The more they work, the more they earn. They've consciously stepped down from earning more. Earning the big bucks in a big hospital so that they can invest in their gospel convictions. So that as this, this doctor sees patients, he's praying for them. He's spending longer. he's not trying to get through patient after patient after patient. He's praying with them. He's opening up the Bible to them. Investing in proclaiming Christ more. Doing all that for the sake of Christ. Living a life worthy of God. After we heard that, it was so exhilarating just to hear the faith of this couple. And so, are your convictions, are your conduct so shaped, so reformed, so saturated by the gospel that you will work really hard? Even it means being tired like Paul, Paul toiled day and night for the church, like Paul in loving your church, loving your fellow brothers and sisters, that you will give yourself your life to be with those around you, to build them up. Now, in saying this, I don't mean just being nice to those around you, being kind, I mean anyone can do that, but really intentionally invest in the lives of the people here around you that they will walk worthy of the Lord so that they too in turn will encourage you to walk a life worthy of the Lord. Isn't that what we want here at our church? And so that question again, are your convictions, your conduct so shaped, so reformed, so saturated by the gospel? Because if it is not, I don't know how to say this any nicely, but if it is not, then it's really not good enough. Not that it's not good enough for me, I mean, I'm not your judge, but it's not really good enough for the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you. Are your convictions, your conduct, so shaped, so so reformed, so saturated by the Gospel? Now imagine if that were so, if every one of us invested 100% in the things of the Lord With the help of God in us, in all of us, that our convictions and our conduct so shaped by the gospel, imagine what a difference that will make for the life of just this church. It will be good, very good, encouraging, exhilarating every time we meet. But also what a difference that will make for the life of this city who so desperately need to hear the gospel. And what a difference that will make for this world. When you think about what Jesus did, he did it with 12 disciples. Changed the world. We've got, what, 70, 80 people here. This is enough to change the world if we invest in this way and what glory that will bring to God. And so, is your life worthy of God? Well, for the sake of Christ, we pray that it is. So, let's join in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we can never thank you enough for your Son Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us, who bled and was crushed, who bore the wrath we deserve for us, that our life might be redeemed and changed and renewed so that our life might indeed be worthy of God. And so we pray, Lord, that in this life we live, we'll be lived out in worship of Jesus our King, And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.